United Church of Christ presents a reflection by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, November 21st, 2021. With all of those words, ancient and modern, ringing through our minds, let's pause for a second of prayer. Please be with us, Lord. Make the words of my mouth and make the meditation of all of our hearts lead us toward your light, for surely you are our rock and our salvation. Amen. When my work week goes as planned, I put our order of worship together in time for the day when Ethelyn is in the office so that she can help me get it edited and printed in the bulletin form we use here in the sanctuary. Next, I reformat the content into slides and the printable document for those on Zoom. And then I turn to writing my sermon. This week, between the time I chose the prayers and hymns and the time I put the slides together, the opening of the service barely made sense to me anymore. Because I have to confess that this week, the news has me shook. On Wednesday, I learned that a young man who confessed, confessed to sexually assaulting four teenage girls was sentenced to probation. He was sentenced by a judge who said he prayed about it, but he came to the conclusion that despite the harm and the pain that the man had caused, somehow prison wasn't appropriate for him. I wondered how he could dare to use the word appropriate in the same sentence when he referred to the man's victims. Also on Wednesday, a substantial minority of our congressional representatives voted against censuring a fellow representative who had tweeted a video, a cartoon video, but a video of himself killing a fellow representative, killing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Most members of Gosar's party seemed to think it was just fine for him to depict himself murdering her. No problem. When female members pointed out that this language could incite real violence and put her in danger, that this constituted workplace harassment and was just plain indecent, I couldn't care less. As any woman who has carried her keys in her hands as a weapon made strategic choices about getting to her car safely in a parking lot after dark, any woman who has had to run hard to evade the guy following her, and yes, that was me, this callous disregard for a colleague's safety just makes the blood run a little bit cold. The vitriol and hatred that have come to seem normal in our political discourse is dismaying. Then on Friday, Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted on all charges. I was not in the courtroom, I am not a lawyer, I didn't hear the testimony, and I did not hear the instructions that the judge gave to the jury. I did read bits of that online, and it did seem highly prejudicial to my untrained ear, 
So I don't understand the jury's findings. I know that there are murky issues to, dis to decide about what constitutes self-defense and who gets to practice self-defense. But what we do know is that Kyle Rittenhouse, then 17 years old, traveled across state lines to a city where he did not live to stand up to protesters he disagreed with and disapproved of. He wanted to go and protest people protesting police brutality, people associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. He didn't stand up to them with signs or chants or words of any kind. He took a gun, a big one, an AR-style semi-automatic rifle, one he was not even old enough to legally carry. He could shoot it, but he had to be supervised. The judge dropped those charges because the statute was confusingly written. Okay. Rittenhouse went armed to oppose unarmed protesters. He incited agitation walking around with his great big gun. And then he claimed he was so afraid for his life that he had no choice but to use that gun. But of course he had a choice. Even once he had decided to go there armed, even if it is true that having stirred things up by parading around with his gun, that so, so stirred things up that someone chased him, even then, he had a choice to lay down the gun. Instead, he shot three people, two of whom died. On Friday, he was acquitted of all charges and vigilantism by white men got another round of enthusiastic approval by right-wing media and our former president. These three things in three days left me feeling undone with anger and fear. I didn't get much done on Friday, which is usually an important day for my work week. And finally, in the early evening, I took myself out for a run which of course led to lots of deep breathing, which reminded me of all that we've been learning this fall. I went home and I picked up my copy of See No Stranger, and then I found a safe place and a safe person with whom to express and process my rage and my fear. And I discovered that underneath all that anger and that fear was grief. Grief because America is not what I keep hoping against hope it somehow miraculously will be. Grief because justice in America is so uneven. Of course, we don't expect our justice system to be perfect. All the personnel from the police to the DAs to the judges and jury, they're all just human. Imperfect things will happen. But this is more than that. Time after time, our justice system seems to favor white men no matter what harm they cause. It is out of balance. And especially if the victims are women or people of color or even white men standing in solidarity with people of color. Meanwhile, our politics shows no sign of pulling out of its downward spiral of vituperation. 
So I am grieving for in America, I don't even believe in, in my conscious mind. Consciously, I know enough to critique us, but somehow bred deep in my bones is this belief in America's goodness. These last five years, I have been, have been an exercise in excavating deeper and deeper layers of this trust in the essential goodness of America. It's a belief that I cling to despite everything I know about genocide of indigenous populations, about chattel slavery, about the persistence of racism in all our systems, medical and educational and justice. Somehow, despite all of that, deep in my bones, I have this idea that America is unique, that our founding principles are a gift to humanity, and that we exist for good in the world. I'm trying to let go of those myths and to love America as it is, to stop putting my ultimate trust in America. Which brings me, at long last, to our texts for today, which call us to think about where we put our ultimate trust. Who is in authority? Who, who reigns? These texts are chosen for what more liturgical churches call Christ the King Sunday. Now, many UCC churches ignore this feast day, and with some good reason. Christ the King is a relatively new celebration in the history of the worldwide Christian church, a new invention declared by Pope Pius XI in 1925. It's not even 100 years old yet. If you contrast that with Advent and Lent, those are a thousand-year-old observations. It just doesn't have much heft, this new kid on the block. Then, too, when Pope Pius scheduled the first Christ the King Sunday, he scheduled it for the last Sunday in October, which was an intentional affront because the last Sunday in October is when Protestants all over the world celebrate Reformation Sunday. This is based on the story, maybe apocryphal, that on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of the, church, the castle church in Wittenberg. So all across the Protestant world, the last Sunday in October is celebrated as Reformation Sunday. So the Pope declared his own feast in contra contradiction to Reformation Sunday. It was not intended as an ecumenical feast. It was a, we're right, you're stupid kind of declaration. It was also declared for a complex, of, a complex web of reasons having to do with the historical role of the church in European culture and its waning political power. The Pope wanted to reassert the primacy of the church. Later, as a sign of ecumenical dialogue, the feast day was moved to the last Sunday before Advent, and the meaning of the day deepened into a statement that at the end of all things, God through Christ is in charge, and we're not. Our claims to power are merely temporary. At its founding, Christ the King Sunday in 1925, Christ the King Sunday declared that 
ideologies like fascism, which were on the rise, do not have the solutions to human problems. And it declares to us today that ideologies like Christian nationalism and American exceptionalism also don't have solutions. They are temporary. As I reread this history this week, it reminded me that our ultimate faith is not in any political system. Politics can order our common life, but they cannot save us. I am reminded that Jesus came announcing the realm of God, a realm that is not of this world. It doesn't participate in the competitive, violent power struggles of this world. It is not of this world, but it is in this world and about this world. It isn't just far away in a, on a spiritual plane after our bodies leave this earth. It is here. Jesus' life, teaching, and ministry declare that the poor of the land are at the very heart of God's reign. Will Gaffney put it this way in her commentary on the lectionary. The majesty of Christ is not found in treasures or temples or palaces, but in a crown of thorns beaten in by bullies and in his own battered and denuded body. This human, mortal, woman-born Jesus is the glory and majesty of God. In the words of the epistle to the Hebrews, the brilliance of God's glory and reproduction of God's very being. That humanness, shared with every girl and woman, with every boy and man, with every non-binary child and adult, that humanness is also the majesty of Christ and our own. Now, on a Christ the King Sunday that comes while we are wearied by the failures of America, we are reminded that no country, no political system, not even one that we love and strive to transform and make its best, not even that one, can ever be the realm of God. That realm where we are all children of God, where there is no Jew or Greek, no divisions based on race, where there is no slave or free, no division based on class, where there is no male and female, no division based on gender, where we are all one. It is a realm that doesn't participate in the ranking and othering of people and consolidation of power. How then is it in this world where power and ranking and othering of peop people seems everywhere? That kind of ranking and working for power is the path the church took for centuries. Once Constantine co-opted the church and made it a state religion, there were two millennia of struggle to determine the church's role in the power structures of the world. The church proved that it itself is not the realm of God. And yet, woven through the church, woven through the world, are glimpses of that realm of love and justice and peace in God's presence. 
<clears throat> Which makes me ask, how do I find this realm? How do I commit myself to it? And how do I live in it right now? I believe, I believe in the words of the psalmist with which we opened our service, that one sure gateway to the realm of God is through giving thanks, through practices of gratitude. When we begin to give thanks, we are reminded not just of the existence of goodness, but of its persistence and its ubiquity. Right now, when injustice, anger, and hatred seem so rampant, practicing gratitude reminds us that goodness is stubborn. Now, being, thank being thankful, practicing gratitude, these are, have turned almost into buzzwords, and it can seem kind of anemic. It might not be very nourishing to say, what am I grateful for? That leads us to start to list things, our material things, our successes, whatever we consider to be our blessings in life. When we use the word for, we turn thankfulness into a commodity. We become thankful for the stuff in our lives. And I'm sharing with you the ideas of Diana Butler Bass, which you may have found in the email this week. We can and should be thankful for the stuff of our lives, but gratitude is more than that. It's more nourishing than that. If we try to add other prepositions beside what am I grateful for, we may find a depth and a wideness to gratitude that is more nourishing. Because when we are suffering and someone encourages us to be thankful, it can feel like a taunt. And it can also, it can set us up to try to deny that we are suffering. It sets us up like there's a giant scale. Well, here is my suffering, but here are the things to, I have to be thankful for. And if I'm just a spiritual enough person or a good enough person, my gratitude will outweigh all my suffering. To me, that seems like a cruel thing to ask of anyone. The assignment is not to say, there's more good in my life than the suffering I'm dealing with. It's to say, I am suffering and I am grateful. And the things for which I am grateful, in which I am grateful, to whom I am grateful, will hold me in my suffering and will give me strength to find my way through it. Diana Butler Bass invites us to, instead of just use, what am I grateful for, to ask ourselves, to whom am I grateful? Who has been with me in my difficult time? To ask, what challenges have I been grateful through? How many times have I been grateful with others? What community helps me celebrate? For whom else am I grateful when they are grateful? When does their gratitude feed me? When has my life been changed by gratitude? Either gratitude I feel or gratitude I have received from someone else. In what circumstances have I experienced gratitude unexpectedly when I didn't see it coming? When has gratitude lit up my life?
I offer this suggestion to use these other prepositions to widen and deepen our gratitude. It's an invitation to pause in our joy, in our sorrow, when we're fearful and when we're angry, and let gratitude accompany, accompany us in every state. Instead of saying, I'm afraid about the political situation in America, but it's okay because I'm grateful for my church and my family and the sky when I'm running, I can shift to, I'm afraid and I'm grateful. And let everything I'm grateful surround me and sustain me so that my anger or my fear does not overwhelm me so that my gratitude nourishes my soul so that I can work with my anger and in the way of Valerie Kaur, not let that anger be a pathway to try to destroy things, but a pathway to try to transform the world. We can let gratitude serve as the gateway to our own spirit beneath the part of ourselves that is rattled by the world and as a gateway to the presence of God in company with the people of God, we can be part of the very realm of God, where there is peace and where there is energy to liven and transform the world. Listen, listen, listen.